Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hi there, fellow thinkers. It's time for you to recline in a comfy chair, rest your hyperactive brains for just about 45 minutes or so, and just soak in some nourishment through the years. Welcome to the new and improved 97% fat-free Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here to bring you all the freshly squeezed news from the future, it's Matthew Dickerson himself. How's your January panning out, Matt? Well, the 97% fat-free is relating to you and I, I assume. <laughs> 3% fat, that's all we've well, got. Well, you're pr- looking pretty cut. I reckon I've added an extra, well, <laughs> bit of fat in there. It's hard. It's I'm working hard. it off. I'm working it off, though. It's hard over Christmas time not it's to be doing time. that. So. <laughs> uh, but look, I had a really interesting phone call just the other day related to one of our tech talks. And I won't mention this specific product, but there was a product that I made mention of. Hold it there. I just I welcome the feedback. It's just great to get some feedback. Oh, it is. Oh, and we do get it regularly. I don't always talk about it. Sorry, I should talk about it a bit more often. But it, we, we get lots of regular feedback. But this one was so specific, I thought it's worth mentioning, that we mentioned a product and I bemoaned the fact that you couldn't get that in Australia. It was only available in the US and I think a sister product available in some parts of Europe. But... I'd like to get one if I get my hands on one, but oh well, I just have to wait until I can get them in Australia. And of course, sometimes you go onto places like Amazon, go to order, and then it says, sorry, this product's not available at your address. So you go, damn, I thought we had a global marketplace, but apparently mm. we haven't. But I got a phone call from someone who said, look, I heard about that product, and that sounded pretty interesting. Would you like one of those? And I went, well, yeah, I think it'd be pretty cool to try that out. Well, actually, my daughter just happens to be travelling home in a couple of weeks' time, and she's in America. (laughs) She's in America at the moment. So, if you can just get one shipped to her, or she could even pick it up for you if you like, and then she could bring it home for you, and then you can try it out. And went, wow, that is fantastic. How true is it? It's it's not what you know; it's who you know. (laughs) Apparently, apparently, but this whole global economy we've got with products being shipped across the globe every minute, every second of every day, and yet sometimes it relies on just someone who says, hey, I like that idea that you've got there, and if you want to try it out, my daughter can help you out there. So (laughs) good old-fashioned, get something while you're overseas and bring it home to someone. So you've got uh, the the Y mouthpiece um, mule who's going (laughs) to run it for you. In the boogie bag. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So yes, thank you to that listener, but I do love the idea that that was what they thought of when they heard that I couldn't get the product that I wanted. How great it is to be connected. (laughs) Well, let's crack into this week's story, shall we? Here at Tech Talk, we love talking about toilet business, so let's kick off today's stories with one straight from the commode. More and more in the 21st century, we we need to stay connected. And for so many of us, that means no wasted minutes whatsoever. Smart appliances are all over the house these days, which means that you can be chatting away with Siri or Alexa or Google, asking about the weather in Albania or what have you at any time you please. So why not have a smart toilet that you can chat with? Well, now you can. Matt, for the low, low price of $11,500, you can invite Alexa to keep you company during your (coughs) special time. (laughs) It is interesting because it is a first world problem. You go to the toilet and you've got your phone with you because who knows when you need to look up a new dad joke or the molecular weight of gold, whatever (laughs) comes to your mind while you're sitting there on the toilet. 
most people are okay taking their phone to the toilet. Some people think it's quite disgusting and gross, and I'm kind of in that camp a little bit. But sometimes you do it because you're busy and you're trying to do stuff. But wouldn't it be better if we didn't have to so take our phone? So it's selectively gross, is that right? Selectively yeah, gross, that's okay. right. When it's someone else doing it, it's gross. When <laughs> I'm doing it because I need to. Well, you're being to, hygienic. That's right. Then I'm okay with that. But, of course, wouldn't it be much better if we could just sit on the toilet and just talk to Alexa, for example, and find out all those important answers to the important <laughs> questions that come to us while we've got that, as you say, special time on the toilet. And that's exactly what we've got now. Now, this one, actually, this toilet by Cola, actually was shown off back at CS in 2019. So it's been on... It's been around for a while then. It's been on the books for a while, but hasn't been available. So the concept was talked about. Maybe the pandemic affected... I'm not sure how much the pandemic affected toilet production, but apparently <laughs> it did. And now, finally, you can actually... Buy one of these, order one of these, have it installed in your home with Alexa Connected. Now, it does more than that. So it's not just Alexa. It's quite a modern toilet. And as, as you said, for $11,500, you expect it to be fairly impressive. It can control the temperature, position and pressure of the bidet. Of course, it's got a, a bidet on <laughs> it. It's got UV bidet. light to clean the bidet. <laughs> it actually can mist inside the toilet to minimise the residue that might be in the toilet. Auto flushing, auto deodorizing, heated seat, air dryer for your bottom after you've used the bidet. So it sounds pretty good. But the one feature I think that's worth paying $11,500 for is not so much Alexa, but the fact that it can automatically open and close ah. and, and basically put the toilet seat up and down for you. So it takes away those arguments when you've got males and females in the house. Yeah. Who left the toilet seat up? Who left the toilet seat down? Don't worry about that anymore. You just walk in and tell the toilet seat what you'd like to do in terms of what position you'd like that to be in, up or down, and it will take care of that. So no more of those arguments are around there. So we have come a long way. The old patent for a flush toilet and an S-shaped pipe beneath that toilet was done back in 1775. So wouldn't Alexander Cumming be so proud of where we've come to <laughs> in toilets since 1775? So this is the toilet for you, James. It's also uh, got surround sound features. It's also got integrated LEDs. <laughs> and it needs... Sounds of waterfalls and things like that. Whatever and, yeah, makes you want music. That's right. But the only thing that I'm a bit disappointed about is it needs a remote control. Oh. surely all of these things would be voice activated, you would think, and I thought the same. Yeah. But no, it needs a remote control. So it feels the like whole back to the 80s. It does, but the whole <laughs> unhygienic thing of having your phone yeah, in your hand right. while you're on the toilet, <laughs> now you've got a remote control in your hand, and then it's not just your phone that you take with you, it's the remote control that's left there by someone else who you then come in and pick up that same remote control. So that sounds worse than a phone that you might just walk out of the toilet with. So I think they've got to work on that one a little bit. But apart from that, if toilets are your thing and you think you need the best toilet in your neighbourhood, then this is the toilet Well, it's you. probably a good idea, just as long as it doesn't make smart comments about rose gardens and, you know, what smells you're leaving behind. <laughs> Possibly right. <laughs> Well, folks, it's just episode three of 2003, 23, I should say, and we've got our first scam alert for the year loaded up for you, ready to go. This time the bad guys are masquerading as the MyGov website. 
Matt, more requests out of the blue, scratching for personal details, I guess. And this was really ramping up around Christmas when people were looking for some extra money around Christmas. They were obviously needing some extra money for presents, and so they were more susceptible to scams. And these were, or this, this particular scam looked like it was using some of the Medibank data, so they had a bit oh, of information really? there to use, so they could go out and use that, send the MyGov scam. Mm-hmm. And of course, the typical one was your income return of, Pick a number, $1,800, $1,000, whatever. Seems like a reasonable number that could be possible, but not so ridiculous that you just dismiss it. So it's not like you've got an income return of $20 million. Oh, Mm. gee, I better get my hands on that. It's an income return that people could feasibly see, oh, that that would make sense. I know I put my tax return in. I had a bit of money coming to me. And so they say your income return of X dollars could not be processed due to insufficient information. Please update immediately at, and they'll give you a link. And of course, that link is not the government, that link is a scammer, you go and put in the extra information to be able to claim your refund. And of course, that just gave the scammers the extra bit of information they Mm. might need to steal your identity. The other thing that's pretty concerning is that with this Medibank data that's been leaked, not only do they have certain information about you, dates of birth, your full name, your address, information they could use to potentially steal your identity, but they also had some of your medical history. And this might have been things like you went to the doctor and had a headache or you had to go and get some medicine that was on the PBS through two people that had drug dependencies or more severe health diagnoses. So a whole range of things that people were uncomfortable with or would be uncomfortable with. And when you start talking about people's health, they are quite uncomfortable sharing that data for a whole range of reasons. But just imagine that if you were trying to get a job, you had a drug dependence years ago, you're now clean, you've been five years clean, five mm. years sober, whatever it might be. And next thing you know, you get some blackmail scams, some blackmail text messages saying, we're going to tell your current employer that you're a drug addict or whatever your problem might have been. Mm. And so then you start to wonder, do I have to start to pay this money to them? So a whole range of things that we're seeing and we aren't at the end of it yet the Medibank data, the Optus data, some of those big data leaks, some of that information, we're going to see more and more of this. Really is a race to the bottom, isn't it, um, for these uh, guys? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So again, one of the things that the government has said is that when they've looked at some of these scams, the replica MyGov site is so close to the real MyGov site. And that's one of the worrying things is that it's much easier now to replicate a site, to take a site and basically capture that and make it look identical to that. They're getting their English much better. They're using some AI tools to get the natural language sounding much better rather than obvious mistakes that we've all seen when you see translations from other languages. So it is a concern. But again, all we can do about it is be alert about it. Don't click on links that are sent to us. If you think you have got a refund, for example, go out of that message wherever you receive that message and go to the website in the normal way you would normally access it. That's right. They're getting better at spoofing email addresses, for example. So you see an email that's from the government, but it's a Gmail address. You think, hmm, not sure that a government employee would be using Gmail. But when you see it come and the domain name looks right, you start to get all those things that the scammers have learnt about over the years and they're getting much better at tricking people, getting past those. And you see these constant stories about people who they'll show you the message, they'll show you the website. They all look so legitimate, but they're just not. And that's the thing you've got to be so aware of. Ah, we live in a tricky, tricky sort of world these days, don't we? Yeah. A rising issue for EVs is that the batteries bring with them a fair bit of extra weight. 
An interesting side effect of this is that the heavier models of EV are in need of a breed of tyre, a new breed of tyre even, to manage the demands that result from this extra weight. Matt, give us the physics lesson behind this dilemma. Well, it's not just the weight, actually. It's the incredible amount of torque Mm. that an EV has. And I remember on one of my first EVs, I had the tyres where I thought they were pretty well shot at 40,000 kilometres. And I went to my local tyre place. I know the staff there very well, know the owner very well, and said, oh, look, I need a new set of tyres. And he firstly asked, how many kilometres did I have? It's an obvious question. I said, 40,000. No, those tyres, they'd they'd get you through 45,000, 50,000 k's easy. I said, look, just have a look at them. He went, oh, gee, they do look like they're pretty well shot. He said, what have you been doing? I said, jump in the car, I'll take you for a spin around the block and you'll soon see. Sure, it'll work. <laughs> and one spin around the block and he realised just all this torque that was available that yeah. obviously is going to just put that little bit of extra pressure on the tyre. So there's that to consider. There's the extra weight that you mentioned to consider. But the manufacturers are trying to manufacture these tyres not just to cope with the extra weight and the extra torque, but the things that are specific to an EV. Now, in a normal car, normal gasoline or petrol-powered car, we don't worry too much about the range. We just know we'll drive it until the red light comes on our fuel Mm, gauge, and then we find a petrol station and fill up. But with an EV, range is a much bigger issue. So the manufacturers are trying to manufacture tyres that are better for range, so they've got less rolling resistance. Now, you get that out of skinnier tyres, but you don't want really skinny tyres because then you've got less contact patch on the ground, so you've got less grip, you've got heavier cars with more power, so you want wider tyres. So trying to get the, yeah, those two right. married up together. It's, it's kind of finding the balancing, uh, the, the tightrope, um, yeah, the, the fine line yeah. of, of exactly what, how much rubber you've got to use. That's exactly right. And they're talking about companies like Pirelli, Goodyear and Continental have actually done some active research to try and get those two married up, get the rolling resistance as low as possible, keep the grip on the tyres for cornering and for acceleration and also be able to handle the extra weight that you've got there. Mm. One of the things that's done, and I know Michelin were doing this at one stage, the rolling resistance is one part of a differential, if you like, with an EV, but the cars are so quiet you haven't got this engine roaring away there when you're out on the highway. So the amount of noise that the tyre makes while it's deforming and then reforming as it goes over the road and over bumps, you can actually start to hear that. So I know Michelin were doing tyres where they actually had a foam rubber insert inside the tyre to try and absorb some to of that noise. To make quiet tyres. To make quiet tyres. <laughs> it wasn't an issue before because especially if you had a, a nice, fast, powerful car, you had that roaring V8 there that was putting out all this noise. You couldn't possibly hear the tyres. But now, <laughs> take that away, you can hear wind noise Well, they can manufacture the car to be sleeker to cut through the wind better and then road noise wow gee i don't remember the the road being that noisy before my old car because you couldn't hear it so these are the sort of challenges that you're getting to you also find that the tires are running at higher pressure because they've got extra weight obviously the air ultimately is holding up that car but when you put all those batteries in the car an average sedan, an average sort of car in an EV world might be 1.8 tonnes, might be 2.2 tonnes. That same car in a gasoline-powered world, I'm sounding like an American now, I like gasoline, <laughs> in a gasoline-powered world might have been 1.5 tonnes. So you're having to manufacture these tyres that can handle higher air pressure, probably stiffer sidewalls as well to be able to handle that weight on the car as well. So a whole range of differences there. And then we've talked about it before when we're getting to the stage where you're trying to get 
airless tyres. So forget about mm. the air you put in the tyre, forget about punctures anymore. You've got the structure of the tyre that holds the tyre up, holds the car up, but can still deform as it goes over bumps. So you've got that good solid contact patch and takes away some of those small bumps Bumps that you don't get with the suspension, you get taken out with the tyres. So a mm. whole range of things there. We don't think about these things. We just think, oh, take the petrol engine out, stick in an EV, put some batteries in, bang, away you, Off go. you go. But when you're designing these cars from the ground up, these are all the things you've got to consider. So it's quite fascinating. Here in Australia, we're pretty happy with the way that domestic solar energy has taken off and it's gratifying to see so many roofs decked out with solar panels as you drive around the country. It's caught the attention of the pollies in Tokyo and so legislation has been passed that all new houses in the big city will need to have solar panels from 2025. Matt, this is a significant step for Japan for a number of reasons. It is a significant step. Japan is the world's fifth largest carbon emitter. So Mm. for a small geographical footprint in Japan, you've got a fairly large carbon emitter. They recognise that, and Japan has been famous over the years for technology, adapting to technology, coming out with new innovative technologies. And so I think they were probably at the point in Tokyo, they went, well, why don't we have more of our buildings with solar panels? They've only got 4% with solar panels at the moment. In the city that you and I are sitting in right now, there's about 35% of our residential buildings that have got solar panels on top. So 4% is obviously very low. They recognise the problem, and so they say, how can we fix it? There's all the retrofitting that many places are doing across the world, so that's fine. They can start to push that, but you can pass regulations to make things happen when you're building new buildings Mm. much easier than to go and retrofit things. If they brought in something that said, everyone that owns a house now, you've got to put solar panels on in the next two years or whatever the time frame might be, I think there'd be some people who would jump up and down about that because it's pretty hard to impose some sort of legislation retrospectively. But for new buildings, that's where it's going to. So as you said, by 2025, every new building that's going up, every new home, every new apartment block is going to have, have to have solar panels on it. Now, it doesn't say in the regulations there how many solar panels, what size solar panels. Yeah, right. So, so you get one solar panel stuck on your roof. You might be you able to be a bit box. cute about it and get around it. But I think the builders that are doing it there, and this is they've met with 50 major builders to go through this legislation, I think they'll be keen to make their building stand out. So if you're mm. trying to be a bit cute and say, we're going to save a few thousand dollars on this building that might be hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's probably not going to work that well. Mm. They're probably better off saying, we've got a roof full of solar panels or an entire roof is made of solar panels rather than a normal roof with solar panels on top or whatever it might be to give you some sort of competitive advantage. But I think, really, this is quite interesting. I see more and more governments around the world bringing in legislation to do things like this. At the moment, this is the Tokyo, Tokyo Metropolitan Government. They aim to halve greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared with the levels in 2000. So they're not just trying to get back to yeah, 2000 levels, right. halve it as, a per, as compared to 2000. So that's quite good. And trying to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. Now, after a little incident they had there at Fukushima in 2011, then you see more and more reliance in Japan on coal-fired power because obviously nuclear reactors, people are a little bit gun-shy about those at the moment in Japan. So you do see a heavy reliance on fossil fuels in Japan. So this is a way to really get them away from that and still let them have the power they need.
And keeping on the subject of renewables, it seems like people have been talking about Australia setting up offshore wind power for ages. Well, where better to do this than the very windy waters of Bass Strait? Matt, plans are well and truly afloat for the next big chapter in Australia's push towards renewables. And I didn't miss the very poor pun that you snuck well, in there. they don't really float, do they? <laughs> they don't really float, but it sounds good. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. Bass Strait is known for its windiness, known for that uh, bit of wind through there, especially when you've got something like the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race on. People yeah. are uh, excited when they get down to Bass Strait before they get to the Derwent, which is very quiet. Well, and look, um, Britain's got a whole bunch of offshore uh, wind turbines in the North Sea there, a similar sort of water, I would assume. And Yeah. yeah. And, and you're right, we have talked about it a lot. We've got a fair bit of land in Australia as compared to, say, the UK, which has got a much smaller mass of land and a lot more ocean around it in comparative, comparative terms. But in Australia, we've used the land a lot, but we've got this great facility where you can use offshore wind farms and you see them around the world. You've got a more consistent supply of wind. You don't have to worry about impacting people with the visual side of it, which I'm not that concerned about, but some mm. people are. And you can put a whole lot out there and you can great generate this great power, but we haven't done it yet. It's incredible. When I found this story, I thought, surely somewhere we've got some offshore wind farms in Australia, somewhere around the coast. Well, did, you, no. did you look it up? None. Okay, so I, I looked it up. Yeah, there, there was a website that said we've got 42 offshore plat- uh, offshore sites, 42 in this country, but none of them have been finished. Build, they haven't built them yet. Um, none of them have got the, the plans finished yet either. So, I, so what does the 42 number mean then? Maybe 42 identified areas, but I couldn't find any. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no. From what I gather, this is the first. That's right. If and it so goes, if it under, if, if they get started. That's right. Well, this is the the government saying this is the first offshore wind zone, and again, it makes sense. Have a wind zone, have an area where mm. you're going to set aside for this. Now, what they are going to do with this wind zone is they're going to say we've got fifteen thousand square kilometres where there's some part of the approval process already done. They've already got permission from the people around there. There were some issues with the visual amenity of it. So they basically said, we're going to take it 25 kilometres off the coast, which seems like a long way off the coast. Mm. I reckon you'd be struggling to see. 25 kilometres off the coast. Could you actually see them? Well, it's an interesting question. Your first thought is 25 kilometres is a long way away. If you remember the old formula, which is approximately 3.6 times the square root of the height that you're standing at, tells you how far you can see to the horizon. And I always laugh when you see someone standing there talking to their child on the beach, for example, yeah. and they're looking out, they're going, oh, look at that island or thing 10, 20, 30 kilometres away. If you actually do the calculation, if, say, your eyes are maybe 1.7 metres above the ground, then square root of that multiplied by 3.6 gives you maybe four and a half, five kilometres is about the limit yeah, as right. to how far you can see out. But when you talk about some of these wind turbines, it's the other direction, if you like. So you're standing, ignore your 1.7 metres, for example, looking out there, can you see that tip? Well, let's just go to an easy number for me for a start. Let's say that tower was 100 metres above the ocean, then square root of 100, that's easy, that's 10. Multiply that by 3.6, that's 36 kilometres. So you could see 100 metres above the ocean from 36 kilometres away. Again, assuming it was big enough, assuming that Mm. you didn't have too much atmospheric interference there, but from the curvature of the Earth perspective and just a little... Side note there, the Earth seems to be round rather round, than flat. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. just in case people were worrying about that. Okay, thanks <laughs> so, for clearing that so up. So if it was 100 metres high, then yes, you'd see that 36 kilometres away. Now, I know... You've also got a bit of a refraction through the um, the air as well, so that helps you to see around the curve too. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I know, for example, some wind turbines that are down near us here, the 
tower itself is 85 metres, so a little bit lower than that 100 metres that I've just used there. But the turbine itself obviously spins out a swept path that goes above that. And I know that's got a diameter of about 130 metres, that one. So the tip of that tower is about 150 metres. So when you consider 150 metres, you start to go, maybe that's over 40 kilometres away. So at 25 kilometres, yeah, people would be able to see it, but they wouldn't see the whole thing. They'd Mm. see maybe a bit of the tip out there, maybe just somewhere near the top of the actual tower itself. But I still think you're going to be I can't wait for them to be built just so I can stand on the shoreline and see. That's right. You might need the binoculars because with something small, you're talking about the resolution of our eyes now. That's a separate thing. We're talking specifically about the actual curvature of the earth and seeing around that. But you're probably going to have to squint pretty hard. You know, get the squint going. The George Costanza squint that allows you to see everything. <laughs> get that going, and you might just be able to see the tips. But I don't think. And if you want to get offended by it, you're going to have to try to be offended. <laughs> you're going to have to try to be offended. You're going to see ships out there in the ocean. You're going to see things out there around you that are surely going to be more offensive than some majestic wind turbines out there. Mm. So in effect, you're going to have an area there, fifteen thousand square kilometers, where you're going to see lots of wind farms, lots of wind turbines out there. It actually reduced, or the size was reduced ever so marginally because there were some people who were worried about the visual amenity of it. So they included in this wind zone, yeah, 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 they included this wind zone a 10-kilometre buffer zone from the shore. So to make sure that you're really, as you said, going to be struggling to see it from the shore, you're going to have to be actively looking for it to be offended by it. (laughs) So, So that's good. Now, what we've got is that the first project is the Star of the South Offshore Wind Farm Project that's been given, given major product status. They're going to have 200 wind turbines on that, and that will be built about 25 kilometres off the coast. So that's the first one. But this whole wind zone will be fantastic. The potential for this wind zone will be to have 10 gigawatts of year-round production. That's probably the equivalent of five coal-fired power plants. So wow. that's getting quite yeah. serious, quite significant in all of this now. So it's off Uh, Gippsland, so if you want to get to the exact area, if you look at Lakes Entrance, which kind of goes down from Lakes Entrance to Wilson's Promontory. So that's down the bottom of Victoria, just on the edge of Bass Strait there. So, But Matt, what about when the wind's not blowing? Oh, no. Turn the lights (laughs) off, obviously. (laughs) If you're going to tell anyone that, they obviously have never been to Bass Strait. No, that's exactly (laughs) right. And that is one of the advantages of having the offshore wind farm you do get that more consistent supply of wind when you're offshore rather than when you're onshore, Mm. and they can build these much larger. You see the actual wind turbines getting to huge sizes now, and that's obviously easy to do when they're doing the offshore ones. The minor problem of getting the power offshore to onshore seems to be addressed, and undersea cable seems to be a pretty convenient way, and I would Mm. have thought running that 25 kilometres from the wind farm to the shore might have been a major drama, but apparently that's fairly easy in the whole scheme of things. So Mm. well done to the Australian government, well done to some of these proponents who have been pushing for it, and I look forward to seeing these wind turbines Yeah, let's hope it gets off the ground or in the water. EVs and clever tech go hand in hand. So much of the build design goes into making sure that you arrive in your destination safely, and safety is the key. Now, it's well known that Volvo were really onto something with their hardline safety way back in the 80s. Well, carrying, carrying on the Swedish tradition is Polestar, who are looking to ensure that you get home alive by watching you while you drive. Not great for the paranoid among us, Matt, but it makes sense. 
I do remember a friend of mine when we were at university, he had a Volvo, which was a pretty daggy car to yeah, have same, many yeah. years ago. And he <laughs> Built was, like a tank, feels like a car. That's right. But the safety, as you said, they were very much focused on safety. And I remember this friend in particular being given a hard time about his Volvo and how daggy it was. And it was the classic Volvo colour, which I'm not sure if the right description of that is a, a light brown yeah, or a, a mustard, mustard uh, sort of colour. That's right. <laughs> and in the hard time... Boxy as old get up. That's right. And in the hard time he's been given, he said, well, you might be right about the look, you might be right about the colour, but let's go back 150 metres from each other and have a head-on collision and see who gets out of the car alive. And play chicken. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> so they have got a reputation for safety, and that's fantastic. And Polestar being their EV version of that, obviously they want to keep that reputation going. Now, one of the things that you have with all the driver assistance we have in modern EVs, semi-autonomous driving, keeping in your lanes, a whole range of things, the logic is that you can pay a bit less attention. Now, I'm not recommending that. I still think if you're driving behind the wheel of a car, you should be paying full attention despite all these various aids that you've got there. They should be aids, they should be assisting you. You should still be the one in control. But it's been recognised by Polestar that maybe some people will just pay a bit less attention. Maybe they'll keep driving when they're a little bit tired. Maybe they'll be distracted by things outside or inside the car. So not only do they have a variety of cameras outside the car to try and make it safer for you to drive, but they've now got in the Polestar 3, which is coming out, they've now got camera-based driver monitoring system that basically focuses on the driver to make sure your eyes aren't getting a little bit sleepy, make sure you're focusing your eyes in the right direction, make sure you're effectively paying attention so that if you start to get drowsy, if you start to be distracted, you get some warnings come up to the point where... If it thinks you're completely inattentive, maybe you've fallen asleep, it will actually pull the car to a stop. Oh, wow. So that active. So you might be there, you look across to the side, you see an interesting view out the side window, you look back, it's probably okay. Go down and just change your radio station if you do that on the car anymore or you just tell your car <laughs> to change it. But distract it for a few seconds, that's okay. But when you're distracted for a length of time or your eyes are in fact closed, that's when it's going to really take some uh, or take some direction, if you like, from its internal computer to say, no, I need to do something drastic here. Tesla needs this sort of technology to make sure you're not reading the words of the karaoke that's going on uh, (laughs) in the car. That's right. So I actually think what we'll see more and more going forward is the autonomous driving, semi-autonomous driving will continue to be developed at a huge rate of knots. We are still some way from getting to that dream of sitting there and having a cup of tea and singing karaoke while we're sitting in the car. But with all of these extra driver features, I think we'll see more and more of this focus back on the driver mm. in addition to what's focused on outside the car because it really needs both, if you like, to get that great solution. Here's one for all you paranoid parents of online gaming kids. Spoiler alert, we're not going to make you feel any more comfortable today. Many parents out there are likely to have come across a little little phenomenon known as Fortnite. And softly in the distant background, I'm hearing throaty gulps and the echoing vocals of, oh dear, not Fortnite. It seems the creator of this online must-have for so many tweens and teens around the globe has been underhanded and has violated one or two privacy laws and duped kids into making purchases. Folks, while you're on your way to discreetly check your bank statements... Matt is going to fill in some of the details here. 
Yes, it is a concern. So I don't think you've given any level of comfort to any of those parents out there at the moment, no, James. It's just that <laughs> all kids who gamed have some at one stage played Fortnite. That's right. And Epic Games have agreed to pay $775 million to the US Federal Trade Commission. now Because they got caught. Because they got caught. I don't think you pay that kind of money if you think you're totally innocent (laughs) and someone set you up. This isn't hush money. This isn't hush money. This is, oh dear, we've been caught. If we just pay that amount, maybe it'll all go away. And that's effectively where they're at. Now, the first question I have, which no one can give me the answer to, of course, is how much money did they make out of their practices that have been found to be not very nice practices? And my logic would say probably more than seven seven five million. I'm probably so. You sure reckon this is like hush money then, perhaps? Well, not so much hush money, but they wanted to actually charge them an amount that would hurt. But who knows how much money they made out of it? Mm. So a few things here. Firstly, yeah. they violated child privacy laws. And they duped minors and adults into making unintended purchases online. So the first thing that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, said was that they were knowingly targeting under 13-year-old players Mm. on Fortnite. So that's the first thing you think, well, that's not very nice. You were targeting some of these people because you probably thought maybe they aren't able to discern what's legitimate, what's me paying for things, what things are happening because a 13-year-old's brain is not as developed as an adult brain and a 13-year-old... Well, there's also, I saw it, I want it, I'm going to have it. That's exactly right, that development of the brain and also the lack of experience. Oh, that's nice, I'm being offered something. I'll just go and get that, thanks, not knowing there might be a charge associated with that. So Epic was aware, the FTC said, that many children were playing Fortnite, many under 13-year-olds, they were collecting their information without parental consent and that's required by US law. So yeah, you knew that was happening and you did it anyway. So that's not that nice. Now, the other part of that is that some of these under 13-year-olds were bullied, threatened, harassed, exposed to dangerous and psychologically traumatising issues such as suicide while on Fortnite. Again, mm. for an under 13-year-old, not a great thing to what do. to have to deal with, yeah. Then you've also got dark patterns. Dark patterns is the practice of tricking users into making unwanted purchases or opting into certain things without you actually realising it, hence the comment you made about check your credit card statements, check your bank statements to see. Now, the part of that payment, part of that $775 million is for Epic to make some refunds to some of these people, which seems fair and reasonable because you didn't know you were being charged for those, so how about you give some of that money back? Now, Epic did say... No developer creates a game with the intention of ending up here in front of the FTC. No, you probably didn't want to get caught doing it. That's probably the lesson there. No developer wants to get caught doing what they just did. (laughs) Yeah, that was what they (laughs) failed to say. They didn't want to end up in front of the FTC because they didn't want to get caught doing it. You just do wonder, though, who knew, who agreed to it? Did it get to the board? Did it get to the CEO? Did it just happen to be a few programmers who said, Mm. oh, this is cool, we'll make some more money out of this, this would be a good thing to do for our boss, or did it go to the highest levels? Now, again, we're not going to get these answers, I don't think. The 775 million is meant to say, you should pay a bit more attention about what's going on Mm. and maybe not do this again next time, and I suppose all other game developers on notice for the same thing. fun with a very modern EV flavour, our Swedish friends at Polestar, 
Do we have a sponsorship with Polestar? <laughs> we should have, shouldn't we? Uh, they've teamed up with Cake, a lesser-known brand of EV motorbike, to bring you a very cool-looking EV scooter. And, Matt, I think I'm going to get one. <laughs> the only thing I don't like about it is the top speed. I'd rather just a bit more top speed. <laughs> I just think uh, an electric moped makes just a lot of sense for a Scooting through town's not enough for you. You've got to be... <laughs> Burning it well, up. Well, let me tell you how fast the top a speed is. on the road. <laughs> let me tell you how fast it is first. Top speed of 45 kilometres an hour. That's fast enough. It's well, faster than I can run. Well, it is faster than I can run as well. But I just thought for a commute, keeping up with commuting traffic at maybe 60 k's an hour might have been just okay. a bit more sensible. But I do like the concept here. If you want to get from A to B easily, simply, then sure, you've got a car, you've got push bikes, you've got motorbikes, but an EV moped just makes so much sense. It mm. doesn't have a huge range. You don't need it to have a huge range. 55 kilometres is its range. So if you want to take this to work and come home, a great way to Probably do it. charges in a heartbeat. Not very long to charge. That's exactly right. Not very expensive. You're talking about $5,300. So not ridiculously expensive compared to buying a car if you lived in a big city and you wanted to use that car to commute around the city. Mm. Well, you're paying a lot more for a car, obviously. But you can imagine how cheap it would be to run. If I reckon you, if you're living in metropolitan Sydney or if you're close to metropolitan Sydney, you're working there, I reckon this would be really cool to show up to work. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. It would charge you, it'll cost you next to nothing to charge up. 55 kilometres, you're probably not going to commute that far to work and back. Or maybe you do, but you just charge up when you're at work and then don't tell the boss you plugged into the PowerPoint there. I'm sure it'll <laughs> charge in a day quite easily. And then away you go back home again. Maybe the 45 k's an hour is designed to keep you a bit safer so that if you do have a little accident there, mm. you know, 45 k's an hour is not going to hurt as much as 60 k's an hour, maybe. Mm. I just worry about the other traffic going a bit faster than you. But I just see this as a huge potential future for commuting as our roads get busier and busier, as people don't want to turn up to work too sweaty after riding a bike, even if it's an e-bike, for example, getting on a moped, getting to work like this seems like a really smart thing to do. So have a look at it, check it out. There's other mopeds, there's other devices out there like this. The big thing with an e-bike is as soon as you get above 25 kilometres an hour in Australia, 32 k's an hour in New Zealand, then the e part of the bike doesn't work anymore. Uh, so our legislation says you can't keep boosting the speed past 25 k's an hour. Now, 25 k's an hour, while you get to that speed of pedaling, getting up a hill, that all makes sense. But if you want to get to work fairly quickly, you might be struggling if you're going at maybe 28, 30 k's an hour and then having to work a bit. But a little moped, 45 k's an hour, I love the concept. Okay, it's quiz time, folks. What's the hardest material on earth? Well, if you said <laughs> well, diamond. I would have said go to the Mohs scale of hardness for that one. There you go. <laughs> Start with talc and work your way up to diamond. And if you said that, you'd be right on the money and clearly paid attention in middle high school science. Score 10 points. Well, do you know what the toughest material is? If you said Chuck Norris's undies, then you'd be right. But only if he was wearing the ones made out of chromium, cobalt and nickel alloy. Matt, the material scientists have been at it again, trying to outdo themselves, and this time they've gone tougher than the toughest. Well, what was, are the ins and outs of this super tough alloy? I was thinking of you because you do talk to your students about material sciences being the great area for them to make some money I think in it's the just future. so exciting to see new stuff coming out all the time. It is, you're right. And the interesting part is that difference between tough and hard. So that Mohs scale of mineral hardness, I think way back in 1812, it was first created. That, that whole right? Yeah, way, way oh, back then. Dodging Napoleon's uh, cannonballs and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. But you're right, diamond is number 10 on that. But diamond is hard, but not necessarily tough. 
tough. And I remember from school, you'd just scratch different mm. surfaces to see what minerals would scratch something and well, then you'd put it in the, the scale somewhere. What's there. the difference between hard and tough then? Well, the difference between hard and tough, as I understand it, is something that's hard has got the ability to scratch or deform or, or make a mark on something else, but something that's tough can withstand physical deformation. So the elasticity. So if it's hard but not tough. So diamond, as an example, you can break a diamond fairly easily, get a hammer out and whack it with a hammer. I imagine that you're going to have someone pretty unhappy about what you've just done to their diamond. But it's very hard. So it doesn't talk about how brittle it is when you talk about how hard it is. So malleable without fracturing. Something like that, yeah. If you can, because you couldn't say like like uh, silly putty. That's not that's not hard. Oh, sorry, that's not tough. No, but you've probably got so the ability. Super malleable, but yeah, yeah. For how much you can plastically deform something without fracturing, I yeah, think yeah, it's right. probably there'd be some technical definition about toughness. But you want something to do with Chuck Norris as well. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Just check those undies <laughs> out. That's on the Chuck Norris scale of hardness, obviously, or toughness. Sorry, but the idea here with this is that there are people out there creating other materials to be used in a whole range of different ways because you want some materials that are tough sometimes. Now, this particular material has got almost equal amounts of chromium, cobalt and nickel. And one of the things they found when they put these different materials together was that not only was it tough, but when you went down to low temperatures, it didn't suddenly become brittle. And that's obviously a big Uh, issue when you've got a plane, for example, you're going up to 35,000 feet, temperature's fairly low there, you want to make sure that your outside skin of a plane doesn't suddenly become very brittle. You hit something up there, maybe some bit of junk in the air. Or just a bit of turbulence to to wobble the wings a bit. And next thing you know, the whole thing falls apart. So aluminium obviously is quite good at those temperatures. But this material they're talking about, you can get to within 20 degrees of absolute zero. So that would be minus 253.15 degrees Celsius roughly. And (laughs) you would still have this material retaining its toughness. So then you start to think about spacecraft because you're not just talking about 35,000 feet for a spacecraft. You're talking about getting way away from any heat retained within our atmosphere, but you don't want something to be set up in a spacecraft and become very brittle. Mm. So this is probably where you're going to see this. I'm not sure if you're going to see it replace an aircraft skin, for example, because weight is so important. So aluminium is quite good for that. Weight is really important for an aircraft, but you're not having to worry about getting down to those almost absolute zero temperatures. But you're right. One of the exciting things is they're putting together different substances and I'm not sure how much AI is being used to generate this, how much science is being used, or they're just whacking together a few oh, different metals. Works. <laughs> like good old-fashioned alchemy. Yeah, that's right. We'll put it together and see what happens. One of the researchers talked about this and said that there are probably millions, even trillions of new compositions out there that might have interesting properties. Now, that sounds like you are just putting them together, doesn't it? Well, yeah. When, when you're talking about um, you've got those three metals, chromium, cobalt, and nickel, and then you've got th- the amounts of each one, uh, and they've got to add up to 100%, of course, but you can play around with those numbers enormously to get yeah. different toughness or hardness or whatever you whatever properties you're looking for. That's right. But that's just three of the metals that, <laughs> of which there are, oh, look how many on the periodic table that are useful. More than three. More than three. <laughs> that's right. So anyway, it's interesting. One thing that is interesting though, and I guarantee you people are going to go and do this after we finish, is if you go and put into Google, what's the toughest material in the world? It doesn't come up with this alloy of chromium, cobalt, nickel. It actually comes up with diamond, which is completely wrong. So when we rely on Google so much, diamond is... Doesn't know what it's talking about. That's right. Diamond is hard, as we've discussed, but it's not 
tough. So <laughs> we do rely on Google, but anyway, in this case, don't rely Far on Google. Far too much, clearly. Mm. So <laughs> this gives you some hope to your students that there are lots of discoveries to be had out there, yeah. lots of things that we should be working on, trying to discover, because I think there are great practical applications for some of these different materials we can come up with. Be exciting to see what happens there. And on that note, I'm going to wind things up and send you all back to work, folks. Come on now, stop procrastinating. You've got all those jobs to do. You've been putting off for too long, so get to it. Quick sticks. I hope that didn't come off too abruptly there, Matt. It sounds like you've been missing school over the Christmas holidays. <laughs> <laughs> but I am looking at a whole range of things at the moment. But one thing I'm looking at is talking to Polestar about some sponsorship because I yeah. didn't actually realise I had two Polestar <laughs> stories today, so I better go and talk to them. Thanks for another cracking tech talk. And as per usual, it's an absolute pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson each week. I'm your host, James Eddy, and we look forward to catching you again next week. Remember to hit the like button or subscribe through your podcast provider and get a friend on board while you're at it. See you in another week's time.